Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 290, recorded March 1st, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 112. Security Now is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing service that gets you paid quickly and makes you look more professional. Get started with a free package at FreshBooks.com. And by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com slash security now. And by MailRoute.info. Businesses of every size use MailRoute to filter spam, to filter viruses, to keep your mail running smoothly. Visit MailRoute.info and save 10% on the life of your account. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security online, your privacy too. Here he is, the man of the moment, the man of the hour, Steve Gibson. Actually, the man of the hour and a half. Of G- <laughs> I actually I got email from someone who was rather irate because I think maybe we broke a record. No, we couldn't have broken a record. It was, I think, like 101 minutes last week. Oh, not even close said, to a record. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> he said, come on, Steve. I only have so much time. And he said, you know, cut out the fluff and, and condense the podcast. It's like, well, okay, well, I, I heard you. I, I, so I, I actually responded to his email. I said, okay, I just want to let you know you've been heard. But, you know, we have fun with the podcast. We, we don't rehearse this. So it's not possible for us to exactly plan everything. We do, you know, have some fun diverging from time to time. But I'll know, give him his money back. <laughs> there you go. Actually, uh, this is the least fluffy of all the shows. So if he thinks this show is fluffy, yeah, very good point. <laughs> I got bad news for you. Most of the uh, other stuff is longer and fluffier. Uh, but no, he's got a, one point. He does have is that the shows have been getting longer and longer. And I, I, I you know, I don't know uh, what to say about that. I uh, we could make them shorter. I guess um, I don't know. I don't know if uh, if I tell you what. If I heard from a huge number of people, I might. But it, but it, most of the time, uh, all I hear is we don't mind. We like it long. Yeah, and we I think more. it's it's in our case. There's there's from the feedback I get. There's it's it's certainly people are loving the fact that they're getting a lot of factual stuff that they even people who've been around for a long time are are running across tidbits that they hadn't encountered before. But also. You know, they do appreciate it from an entertainment value standpoint. So they're listening to, you know, have some fun with us. I think that's the best way to approach this is just figure we're we're in the background. You're listening. You're learning as, you know, you've got some company in the room. It, you, it's this or uh, or you could be listening to Dr. Laura. So, you know, you take <laughs> – I guess she's off the air. Uh, but you take your pick. You know, it's it's just like radio. It, it's just keeping you company. And in this case, you're learning a little bit something. So those of you who uh, are tuning in live, we will do Mac Break Weekly tomorrow along with the iPad announcement. Steve's very kindly moved us over. Normally we do the show on, on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern at live.twit.tv. I'll tweet out to let the Security Now fans know that we're going to begin early. This is a, this is a Q&A episode. Yeah. Um, the big news 
from the week, which uh, I finally had to tweet to everyone that I knew about this because all of our listeners were were sending me tweets saying, hey, Steve, have you heard about the LastPass cross-site scripting vulnerability? Right. Which was uncovered. And so in order to like stem the tide of everyone making sure I knew, I sent out a tweet saying, yes, I know about it. And we're going to deal with it in, in detail uh, in this week's podcast, which we will uh, do here in a few minutes. Oh, okay. So that's coming up in just a little bit. That's yep. good. All right. That's, it's nice yeah, to give them because people, people want you to, to, to cover the latest. But, of course, we don't want to cover it until we have something to say about it. But we will talk about that in a second. Before we get to that, I, want, I do want to introduce a new uh, sponsor to the show. If you don't mind, I said the name before the show began. Steve said, who? I said, FreshBooks. Yeah. FreshBooks. Actually, I started using FreshBooks. Amber introduced uh, me to them. They're a Canadian company. In 2004, when I was just a little guy doing invoices, and I was doing everything by myself. And invoices had always been a pain in the butt, you know? I, I mean, I remember moving them to the computer. I think I was probably using Microsoft Word to print out an invoice, stamp it, mail it. Hope they uh, send it back. Hope I can keep track of it. And I'd go back and I'd age my invoices and i go, oh, man, they haven't paid me in nine months. In fact, I do remember a very sad day when I had to tell somebody, you know, you haven't paid me in nine months. And they said, what? We can't pay you now. <laughs> it was nine months ago. We worked that out. But FreshBooks would have saved my butt. And I was really glad when I found them in 2004. What is it? Well, it's online. Very easy to use. If you go to FreshBooks.com, you could try it out. In fact, it's free for up to three clients, so uh, a great way to get started. For uh, your very small business, it's yeah. completely free. Yeah, well, and yeah, and for, you know, I think some people, uh, some con some consultancies or freelancers, three is plenty. Uh, three clients is plenty. Go to freshbooks.com, and you can find out all about it. It's a beautiful interface. You, you, you make um, uh, invoices that look exactly like the ones that you would print out or even get from a printer because you can upload your logo and design it and everything. Uh, but there's a lot of advantages uh, to doing it online. For one thing, when you do it on FreshBooks.com online, you're giving your clients a lot of ways to make it easy to pay. So, for instance, uh, they can pay by credit card. Isn't that nice? They, of course they can mail you a check, but they can pay by credit card, PayPal. There are actually 11 electronic payment services. So that means easier for them to pay, easier and quicker for you to get paid. If you do time tracking, their built-in software, they also have an iPhone program, will automatically do the time tracking and port it right into the invoice. So it's one click of the mouse to make it very simple. Uh, if you want to mail paper invoices, they can do that too for an additional fee. Uh, they keep track of your invoices so you know when they're old. You even get a tickler so there's automated late payment reminders to to your clients. It is so easy, so simple. iPhone 2. Your data, of course, is completely secure. We should talk. We'll talk about that Gmail incident a little bit later it's on. It's on the list here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, couldn't be better. For estimates, time tracking, expenses, clients and staff, contractors, this is the way. Go to FreshBooks.com, take the tour, and then do it free for uh, up to three clients. It's very affordable for more. Find out why two million people now use FreshBooks.com. Use FreshBooks.com for their invoicing. And by the way, every day this month, FreshBooks is giving away a free birthday cake to one of our listeners. <laughs> they draw a name every day. <laughs> so you could also get a birthday. It doesn't have to be your birthday, by the way. Just sign up for FreshBooks. And hey, it's a March 1st. You can get the first cake. The first cake of March. Right. That's right. They're starting a whole new uh, month, aren't they? FreshBooks.com. Okay, Stephen, let's see here. 
Um, what do you want to start with? The security news? I'm going to tell Greg, my tech support guy, about that. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I, 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 I let him do, like, you know, computer PC fixing stuff uh, sort of on the side. Perfect and uh, And this would be fantastic, I would think, for him invoicing customers. And, and, and I was thinking also for collecting payment. Yeah. I, I used it for years uh, until I until I had Lisa and a staff to do this for me, and it got more complicated. But uh, it's it's just great. I love it. FreshBooks is so cool. Well, so um, we do have um, Service Pack One for Windows Seven, and also I think that also covers Server Two Thousand Eight, if I recall, has been released, and not without some problems. Um, there have been instances where some security software that third-party security software has caused service pack one problems. And I mean, there's been enough of a buzz that I, I found it interesting. Brian Krebs, our illustrious um, security blogger and, and researcher uh, came to the conclusion based on everything that he had seen that if you've been keeping up with security patches all along, as I'm sure all of our listeners have, his feeling is, uh, since all Service Pack 1 is, is everything that's happened so far, uh, don't bother. Um, and, you know, for example, maybe only use Service Pack 1 if you're doing a fresh install. You'd certainly want to do that because you'd install, you know, the original Windows 7, then immediately Service Pack 1, which probably saves about three hours worth of ridiculous, endless individual security patch updates and then updates to those updates and updates to those updates and so on. So, you know, it's my, my feeling is based on our experience, Microsoft won't let us not install service pack one in the long term. Ultimately they seem to get a little antsy about service packs that haven't been installed and start bugging us more and more. And, you know, you get something, even if you told them, don't bother me about this anymore, it sort of comes back and, and then it's like, okay, why am I being bothered about this? It's like, well, you really need to, you know, install the service pack. So, you know, I, I would say there's no hurry about installing it. You get no substantial new features, you know, nothing about it is necessary especially, well, given the fact that you've been keeping yourself up to date. That's exactly what Paul Thorat said, too. We covered it a little bit uh, ah. last week. Yeah. Yep. He's in agreement. But but if you haven't been keeping it up to date, here's a chance to get them all at once. Oh, yes, and save yourself <laughs> substantial amount of time. If um, you do the, you know, a lot of uh, IT guys do this. If you uh, go to Windows Update and you uh, look at the catalog, you can download this service pack as a standalone file. So if you've got a bunch of machines that you haven't been updating or you're an IT guy and you want to update the whole office, that's the way to do it. You can put it on a CD yep. and then go around and update all the machines. You can get the full update. Yeah, it's big. I think it's like half a gig, 500 and something megs, I, yeah. as I recall, for the, for the, for the full Monty. It, it is but. better to use Windows Update, Paul said, because Windows Update will check for dependencies so yep. that if that machine has it needs something before Windows Service Pack Windows Seven Service Pack One is installed, it'll get that first. So you don't have some uh, oddball s situation going on. Yeah. So that's the best way to do it. Yeah, I will be installing another another instance of Win Seven in a machine shortly, and so I was really delighted. In fact, I what I got because I'm an MSDM member, I just got Windows Seven with Service Pack right, One, right. you know, already pre bundled. So saves a lot of time. You bet. Um, in the news, something just sort of joggled my uh, 
security <laughs> filter uh, in the in Cheshire in the UK. Keystroke loggers were found on library computers. They don't know how long they've been there. They don't know who installed them. They don't know who's been back to dump them. But these were these were hardware blobs that we've talked about years ago in line in the keyboard. Ooh, wow. And and so what they've done as a policy is they've they've changed their their physical structure so that the keyboards are plugged into the front of the machines rather than so they must be USB keyboards they're probably plugged into a a front USB mm-hmm. port rather than in the back just so that it's more obvious if there's you know a blob that's been plugged in between the keyboard and the and the computer but the the point of my raising this is i just wanted to sort of remind just as a little you know general sort of signpost reminder that as a general rule, you cannot find less security anywhere than in a publicly accessible PC. You know, a library computer, and, and we have talked about this before, but I just wanted to reiterate because I think it's so important, a, a computer that that you don't have pretty much constant oversight over, you, you just have no way of knowing what it's, short and long-term history has been and there's no way there's no safe way to use it even and this is a perfect example even if you were using ssl you had you know https everywhere you were you you turned facebook's https enforcement on although we're going to talk about why that doesn't really work either (laughs) um i mean even with all that if you were to log on or purchase something and enter your, your your name and your address and your credit card information and there was a physical keystroke logger between your keyboard and your computer, it would capture all of the things you're typing in and anyone looking at a log could easily parse out your name, your address, you know, your billing address for the credit card and the credit card number or your login credentials. And, and you know, and and somewhere you're typically typing in a URL and so they could see you doing that so they would know what site those credentials applied to. So just by looking at the log of keystrokes, you pretty much, I mean, that, that's very powerful, which of course is why someone, some bad people took the trouble to put keystroke loggers on those library computers. But so I just want to sort of, as a, just a little signpost reminder, um, if you, if you have some app, some, some use for a, you know, a library or a kiosk or some public access PC, just, you know, have your guard up past, you know, past the red level. I mean, just, there's just really nothing safe you could do except completely passive browsing where you're just, you know, just putting things into Google and clicking on links and, and being passive and not, not getting sucked into providing any information um, on an, on an, you know, um, inward direction. One thing I like, though, more and more on browsers you'll see, or I guess websites do it too, uh, uh, don't check this if you're on a public machine. Or yes. they, are, they are at least kind of warning you. you know, yes. Don't and save that really, password, things like that. Really, really good to see that, they're, that we're beginning to get this kind of, um, you know, pervasive understanding of what the dangers are. Basically, it's once upon a time, a company would have, 
been reluctant to do that because they would have felt they were discouraging right. people from something that they wanted to do. Now, or scaring them. It, well, precisely. Now it's like, oh, they're being responsible right. to remind us that this is a danger because everyone really understands that's the case. Right. Right. Speaking of which, um, there was an interesting blurb from our old friend Robert Graham. Robert Graham was one of the founders of Network Ice that did the Black Ice Firewall that was right. very popular years ago. And uh, he poked his head up in public uh, commenting about the new Intel Thunderbolt 10 gigabit per second I.O. bus, which the, the latest Apple um, laptop computers are famously going to be having installed in them uh, for the first time. And what Robert mentioned, I just wanted to just to note here because that's what we do. Um, and that is that in exactly the same fashion as the Firewire bus is a security concern, so is Thunderbolt. Essentially, Thunderbolt is the PCIe bus which is now the, the, the bus that links all of our components together in our PCs, it is that bus serialized. I didn't and, know that. That's and, interesting. Yeah. And what that means is that a device that is, that is on Thunderbolt has DMA, direct memory access, to your machine's RAM. So we did talk about this years ago with Firewire. There were some exploits. In fact, you know, HB Gary, the, the company, the government contracting security firm that's been in the news a lot lately, um, they provided the government with a device, which a Firewire-based device, which you could just plug into any Firewire-based machine and it would in instantly clone the current state of its memory that allowed people who had this device, for example, to steal cryptographic keys that were in use at the time directly out of the machine's memory. We've talked about, for example, in the past, lowering the temperature of RAM immediately after turning a machine off, like, you know, spraying it with Freon or, or you know, in <laughs> to, order to, to hold to, it. Yeah, in to order to hold it. it. Yeah. yeah, and it's surprisingly effective. And we talked also about how due to the fact that the way cryptographic algorithms work, you take the the key and you do something called a key expansion where, for example, in the case of AES, which we covered on an entire podcast before, you, you, you take it like a 128-bit or 256-bit AES key, you run it through a key expansion, which, which takes those that relatively modest number of bits and algorithmically expands it into a block of information it does that because the the symmetric cipher is iterative and it has to do what it does for example either 11 uh cycles in the case of a 128 bit AES key or 14 cycles in the case of a 256 bit AES key so in order to to feed this the cryptographic algorithm 14 times you need much more data than just 256 bits, which is the source key. So you sort of, you expand it, and that's called building a key schedule. Well, what's, the problem with that is that in 
in doing that, in scheduling the key out to full size, which is what has to be done in RAM in order to use the cipher in real time. That is, if anything is, is using the cipher, like if you've got TrueCrypt running or, or anything else, then there's this block of memory which, which has to be there accessible to the computer in order to perform the encryption and decryption on the fly back and forth. Well, the act of creating that dramatically reduces the, oh, I'm sorry, increases the redundancy, reduces the entropy, recre- increases the, the redundancy of information. So what the researchers found was if they freon sprayed RAM, even if there was some deterioration of the data, they 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 could because they knew where the data came from they could find it in memory they could sort of lock onto it and they could figure out what the original key was even from a corroded expansion of that key so um so i, I guess the point is that that giving anyone access to the running contents of your computer's ram is really a bad thing to do. There's, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's all in there. <laughs> it's everything. It's everything. It's your logons. It's it's decrypted you know, decrypted uh, keys. Things decrypted like that. Keys. Everything. Yeah. It's the running state of your machine. You know, it's the mother load for <laughs> for a bad guy. And FireWire, due to its nature, allows that. Well, so does Thunderbolt. And so, on his blog, Robert Graham painted. You know, a, a a picture of you know someone some some presenter is is in a conference and goes up to the podium of the future and plugs his his MacBook into a Thunderbolt port oh, for the for the video for the video. But somebody's tapped into that. Exactly. Well, and because you have read write access, a sufficiently clever hack would be to oh. download some code. That dumps the hard drive at and at ten gigabits. It's not going to take that long to suck the hard drive out through the port. Wow! So anyway, I just I wanted to put this on people's radar. Now it's important not to get too concerned about it because not only does Thunderbolt do this, but pretty much all the Apple ports do. FireWire does, ExpressCard does, and the even the SDIO slot allows this. So these are these are all connections into the system's memory. Now, in the case of of Thunderbolt, there is chipset support for imposing limits on the range of memory that is accessible over the bus. But as far as we know, the Mac OS isn't yet exercising that the features those features of the chipset. Um, maybe, they do have. They do have. Uh, Lion is is in development right now. It's close to coming out. And I'm out, just so. going to say, yeah. since, since Apple's giving so much security uh, focus on this on this next iteration of the Mac OS, you know, maybe especially after listening to this, they'll they'll do something about it. Yeah, this would be uh, that'd be a good thing to put in line. So you could constrain the amount of uh, memory that the that Thunderbolt could see. Is that how yeah, it works? Yeah, you you would you would constrain the range, like you you set an upper and a lower limit. To where, for example, to the display buffer, so that so that the so that you're only able to access the display memory which you're wanting to export to a a remote monitor and not export the entire contents, you know, four gig address space 
of, of the machine, which, you know, it's no one else's business. Yeah. Speaking of Facebook, um, someone tweeted me and I remembered that I had seen this now a number of times. And so I pursued it because I wanted to get the whole story. And I have verified. We were excited that Facebook offered recently the ability to force HTTPS full SSL connection security as a as a user configurable option um, for individual users' accounts. The bad news is that it was known that some Facebook apps themselves may not support HTTPS. Mm. You, know, they, you, know, you may be trying to connect to a server that just doesn't have an SSL certificate. The apps have are, are served by the app uh, creator, not by Facebook. So, you Correct. Know, and I would bet you a lot of app creators haven't bothered with an SSL certificate. Correct. And so what happens is if you try to, from, from in Facebook, go to a Facebook app that doesn't support HTTPS, you get a dialog box that comes up. It's and the title on the dialog box says "Switch to regular connection." Parens HTTP close parens question mark. And then in the, in the in the text in the dialog, it says, "Sorry, we can't display this content while you're viewing Facebook over a secure ah, connection." So at least you'll know. You, oh yeah, to use this app, it says you'll need to switch to a regular connection. Now, here's the bad news. If you do that, it turns off the option in your configuration permanently. Oh, <laughs> not just for that session, but forever. Yes, it oh. just puts you back to the Stone Age. Not good. Back the way we were last year. So that's unfortunate. But people, just, you know, if you really are concerned about security on Facebook, you shouldn't be using those third-party apps anyway. I know it's tempting and fun. But those things leak your information like a sieve. That's a very, very good point, Leo. Stay away yep. from them. Yep. And I would say, uh, given that Facebook now supports this, something like Force HTTP or HTTPS Everywhere, using those add-ons for Firefox, which will keep Facebook back in a secure mode, even if it's not enforcing it itself, you could enforce it at your client end. That. That's certainly the way you'd want to go. But I wanted to make sure that people knew, since we were celebrating the addition of this feature to Facebook, that they hadn't quite done it the way we wish they had. Well, I don't think they have any choice because they'd have to compel all the app uh, developers to go SSL. And I don't, uh, do I don't understand, though, why they don't allow an exception for, like, non-Facebook domains when necessary. Right. But, but, keep, but keep, that, it on. keep the settings set right. for themselves. Right. Yeah, I, I I don't you know. It sounds it's, to me it sounds like it was a quick hack. They like say, oh, shoot, we need to you know turn off HTTPS for our apps, so we'll turn them off Leave for it everybody. Off. It's, uh, like, it's also that convenience versus security thing. Uh, yeah. they don't want to bother grandma. Ah, uh, good point. Because what this would prevent is it pre it would prevent you from being prompted with that dialogue every single time you right. go you use a non compatible app. Yeah, grandma's yeah. saying I don't care, so they turn it off. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah. yeah, that wouldn't be, yeah. I could see why they did it that way, but still. So uh, you mentioned earlier the Gmail uh, email lossage. Um, it's not really a security concern, but it, it just sort of came on my radar. About uh, Google is estimating about 150,000 
of their Gmail users, which they're saying is 0.02% of Gmail users, lost all their email. Just gone. Whoops. <laughs> Bye-bye. Don't, you hate, don't you hate when that happens? Bye-bye. Uh, they're saying that it was a storage software update, which was buggy, which they pushed out across their network. And people had said, wait a minute, I thought you were replicating our email in multiple sites all over the place, specifically so that an outage, you know, couldn't happen. And they said, well, yes, that's if there's no bugs. But if there's bugs, then the bug replicated the deletion of all of the email in all those accounts. Um, and from their blog, though, the good news was nothing was permanently lost. It was taking them a lot of time to recover, though, because get this, they were ba- they were restoring from tape. Huh. So well, hey, at least they had the tape. Exactly. I was going to say it's it's yeah. a, you know the, that the good news is they had that, and so they were able to get. They will eventually have restored everybody's lost and deleted email, and and their blog I thought gave us a sense for the size of the window. They said it's important to note that email sent to you between six p.m. Pacific time on February twenty seventh and two p.m. Pacific time on February 28th was likely not delivered to your mailbox and the senders would have received a notification that their messages weren't delivered. So 6 p.m. on the 27th to 2 p.m. on the 28th is 20 hours. So Hmm. there was a big window during which things were not happy for those 150,000 Gmail users. Again, not a security problem, but, uh, just something that is in the process of getting put back together. I don't know if, if, if our users, if any of our listeners um, might have been affected. I wanted to let them know what had happened and uh, that if they weren't yet mended fully, they probably would be once the tape was finished spinning. Yeah, I, I don't see anybody in our chat room who says it happened to them. I don't think it happened to me. I guess you would only know. It'd be hard to know. I guess you just, if you got a lot of email and you went 20 hours without email, I guess you'd know. Yeah, and you might know later if right. if some Suddenly if appears. Some, if yes if some some um, tireless SMTP server is retrying a few times and finally gets the the mail to be accepted. Okay, so last pass. Um, uh, the good news is, um, I don't regret my recommendation or the analysis that I provided our listeners months ago nor all of the feedback I have received from people who are, whose lives have been dramatically improved from you, thanks to LastPass. Um, what, what was discovered by a very clever uh, security researcher, Mike Caldwell, who's in the UK, was that there was a, there was a, a way that a user's logon session could be hijacked by a malicious site. So what the user would experience would be what we always talk about here is you go to a to a site which is malicious and if you were currently logged into LastPass as most of us are statically um so that we have you know so we have access to all of our other sites usernames and passwords, if you were logged in, 
it was possible for a malicious site to to execute script javascript in the context of the last pass domain so this is this is what's called cross site scripting and and it's the way that that malicious sites are able to get around all of the preventions which you know all of the barriers are deliberately erected in order to keep domains from leaking information to other domains um so what was posted was that it was possible to determine that LastPass user's email address, their password reminder, and their site usage history, which, you know, is a big information disclosure problem. Um, the LastPass folks fixed it within three hours. Uh, Mike responsibly disclosed it, let them know um, it was this was fixed in three hours. It was... It was a very clever hack. I take my hat off to him because there many of the things he tried, and he's got a lot of experience doing this, didn't work because LastPass had thought through all of these possible vulnerabilities. Um, yet he he came up with a way, and this is the problem with web-based stuff in general. He came up with a way that he could close a a script that was going to be broken and then with a closed script tag and then reopen a new script and then inject some script himself. Now, here's the good news behind all this. At no point was any of the encrypted data for all, I mean, which is what we have LastPass for, vulnerable. And it wasn't because of the architecture of LastPass, which is why I endorsed it. So um, in his blog posting, he went a little too far, and he said that he was certain it would be possible to obtain encrypted and protected site logon username and password data, but it's not. He was wrong on that count. Um, I've responded over on his blog after analyzing it and talking to the LastPass guys to make sure I had my facts straight. And here's why. What's so cool about LastPass is that they don't ever get our cryptographic key. That's why I felt so comfortable using it. What, what Mike found and was able to demonstrate was the fact that by, imper- by getting, we're using cross-site scripting vulnerability to impersonate essentially us, he was able to get the LastPass site to reveal some information, the non-encrypted information that it had about us. Because LastPass, back then, it's been fixed since then, but they didn't realize, there was no way for them to determine it wasn't us making the query. So they were willing to provide to us what they had, but they can't possibly provide what they don't have. And what they never have is our cryptographic key. It never leaves us. When we log into LastPass, our master password, as our users will remember from the podcast we did covering this, the script running in our browser takes our username and our password and, and cryptographically turns that into the symmetric cipher key, which we then use 
to that is our browser uses to encrypt our login data. And so all that LastPass is doing is saving opaque blobs, which which they are unable to decrypt. So even with cross-site scripting, a another session is being created that has no access to the cipher key that's in, that is in our browser um, running either in the plugin or in the in the regular web UI. So thanks to this architecture that LastPass established, um, at no point was uh, anything more than the information that Mike showed available. And Mike is a LastPass user then and still. He's this hasn't put him off of it. Um, he's still using it now. Me too. As am I. Me too. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. don't be afraid. Should we consider um, not putting everything, all our eggs in one basket, as you said? Um. Well, the advantage of LastPass. I mean, that's the whole point. Is, is that it's one big, secure, happy basket. Um. I mean. The, the guys were very embarrassed. They immediately fixed the problem. Mike also suggested that they, that they enforce strict transport security, which we've talked about, STS, to, um, with browsers which, which uh, understand it, like Firefox does, which they immediately implemented. And they've, they've all, basically it was a, I think it was a good wake-up call because they, they had been spending their time broadening their reach and making LastPass more pervasive on more devices. And this sort of brought refocused them on the web side of things rather than the third-party device side. And as a consequence, uh, in about six hours, Joe has re-implemented um, or, or rather implemented a, a very strong technology to much better control this sort of just prophylactically to to preemptively keep other things like this from happening and I'll also mention that that anyone using no script would have always been prevented oh, from this because no script has built-in cross-site scripting right. blockage and it was effective Mike in his in, in some follow-up comments in his blog commented that Users of NoScript, even, you know, naturally we're trusting LastPass. We would not be trusting um, some other, you know, random site. But even if we were, NoScript itself would have blocked this particular exploit against us. So one more reason to use NoScript if, as if anyone needed another reason to use it. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a little scary, but I guess a happy ending makes it all okay. Well, and, you know, the the... Yes, we would like there never to be a problem. Um, this, you know, the good news is the architecture that the guys implemented prevented this this exploit from going any further. What we really need to have protected was protected because they didn't have it to disclose, and they don't want it to disclose. As I talked right. about, when we talked about it, in, you know, originally the reason I liked it was that the, our stuff never left our local control in a non-encrypted form. Um, and, and the convenience of LastPass is that it is integrated into our browser so that, you know, so that it's able to participate. Well, I mean, it's, 
it's a difficult thing to do that securely. I mean, it's it's really difficult because, as we know, browsers are the 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 main focus of today's malware. That's if you didn't, all this is happening. If you didn't use the LastPass uh, plugin, would this have affected you? Um, another, another, yes. If you were, okay. lo- if the only thing that would have prevented this is if you were completely logged out, meaning you know not logged into LastPass at all, such that you it would have had to ask you for your credentials, um, your username and password in order to log into it. So. So, because it was the, it was a session hijack. This, this cross-site scripting vulnerability was essentially hijacking our logged-in status. The fact that our browser was logged into LastPass is what it was taking advantage of. And for those of you who are interested, uh, Steve did a thorough analysis of LastPass on episode two hundred fifty-six, uh, two to the eighth, if it's easier for you, for you to remember. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so you can go back and listen to that, and then add this. To the to the mix because this is a new uh, flaw. Well, fixed immediately. I mean, you know, yeah, that's what I like. Mike, they, let them know know about it. It was instantly fixed. None of none of this Microsoft wait for you know next Tuesday or you know a month and a half or or so forth. I mean, this thing was addressed instantly, um, and and I think it, it ends up it, it ends up further increasing the security because you know these guys realize they have a huge stake in in maintaining everyone's confidence in their service. And I'm, I continue to feel, as even does Mike, who's still using it himself, that you know they got this right. Bravo, LastPass. Um, I did pick up a little note from a listener who wondered if I was ever going to review the Kindle 3. And I don't want to take much time on that, but um, I'll just say that I love it for what it is. But... Recently, I've been reading some textbooks, more, you know, O'Reilly stuff, programming stuff. And, and I switched to the DX because, you know, code was wrapping in the little screen of the Kindle 3. And, and then, sort of out of curiosity, I tried reading it over on my iPad. And the iPad just blows it away. The, the, the ease of use, the, Higher contrast that you're always going to get from a from an active backlit screen means that things are just sharper and um, the various fonts show up better. Um, I, I'm I'm I love the Kindle three for for fiction book reading, you know, for 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 textual book reading, for for stuff that isn't graphics, that isn't diagrams, you know, really for you know paperback sort of books. Nothing beats it because it's it's great for that. You can hold it in one hand. You know, the iPad really is too heavy to hold in one hand. You really need to prop it somehow. Um, but if you're, you know, sitting down somewhere and, and you have a lap, you can sort of prop it up in your lap and just, you know, flick the screen forward with your finger. So I'm excited about tomorrow's iPad 2 announcement. And Well, that's really- why the speculation is it'll be lighter and thinner exactly for that reason. Yes, and I'm really excited about iPad 3 which is supposed to give us that same quad-resolution retina display in a pad form factor that we now have in the new iPhone 4. iPad 3, that's not until next year, right? I mean... (laughs) Maybe later this year. The the news was that, like, they're kind of... They're like... The problem is they can't get production levels up. But it means they're trying to produce them. Hmm. And that's... That sure (laughs) would be great. Oh. (laughs) I mean, that's a beautiful screen. 
That's all I want. I, if I could get that retina screen on a pad size device, mm. you know, wow. Mm -hmm. um, we heard from a, a listener, Security Now listener, Anthony Pritcher, um, who wrote, Spinrite saves my raid zero. He said, hi, Steve, longtime listener of Security Now. Enjoy the podcast immensely and appreciate the work yourself and Leo do for the community to inform us all about being more secure. I purchased Spinrite two years ago to support the podcast. Wow. Thank you, Anthony. I never needed to use Spinrite to fix a drive until today. On my Windows 7 X64 RAID 0 installation, Windows began to have some weird behavior, random freezes, and the like. I also noted that the Intel Matrix Storage Manager began saying a drive was being disconnected from port 1 and reconnected, disconnected, reconnected. Mm -hmm. However, Windows was still limping along. Thanks to Leo and his continuous mention of backing up, <laughs> <laughs> I have a local and off-site backup at my office. Good man. So, so I wasn't concerned if Windows just fell over. However, I was more interested to know if there was something wrong. I ran Spinrite on level 2, booted from a USB floppy drive. A USB floppy drive, that's what USB it says. USB floppy. Well, yeah, that's yeah. The, probably the only kind there is these days. Yeah. Booted from a USB floppy drive, and it began chugging along. I have two 500-gig Seagate drives, so the scan took one hour and 30 minutes on the first drive, which reported no problems. The second drive was about 80% done, and I was thinking by this time, Spinrite would probably find no problems there either. Then the Dynastat monitor kicked in. It ran for about two hours and then completed the rest of the drive without hesitation. Windows booted normally and no longer had the lagged experience I was having before. And of course, the Intel Matrix Storage Manager software no longer complained about a drive being disconnected and reconnected. Thank you, Steve, for such a superior product with so many boot options available. Your software saved me from having to reinstall Windows and set all the settings I've gotten used to again from scratch. I know this story isn't saving lives or someone's job. Just a fellow fan who really enjoys your programs and hope to be one of the first customers of CryptoLink. <laughs> Take care, Anthony Pritcher. Where so, is, how does, what is, thank you, Anthony. What is the status of CryptoLink? Um, I don't mean to <laughs> beat put you me up on, on the this. spot. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just an update. Um, I'm very nervous uh, oh, still about COECA or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah about what the FBI is going to try to do. Uh, as I mentioned last week, it seems like what they're going to ask for is, and they seem to be backing down a little bit from some of their earlier statements, which I think is good. They seem to be wanting sites that could sites and services that could comply with a wiretap order to be, be to be forced to. So, for example, Google and Facebook, though they're endpoint services that have decrypted information because they're at the other end of their customers' SSL connections. So, when when the federal government goes to Facebook and says, we need all of the communications mm. of this person. Facebook says, well, our technology isn't set up to do that. It's not that they couldn't. 
It's that, you know, they haven't had a reason to before, so well, they don't have to. Uh, they have, don't have the code in there to do that. And I bet you they intentionally don't add that. I mean, they don't want that responsibility. Right. And so what, what the government would like would be legislation which, which makes it mandatory for something like Facebook or Google to implement the technology that would allow them to respond to a wiretap order like that. That's what I'm thinking. Now, the problem is they have... In the past, they've mentioned Skype by name. You know, Skype is non-U.S. based, probably makes the U.S. government a little nervous. And as we know, it's point-to-point crypto, just like a VPN, just like CryptoLink would be. So so what's unclear is what they're going to ask for along those lines. Um, I'm going to keep myself busy. Um, I actually have a project I haven't talked about yet. Um, I, I've got a couple of things I have to wrap up first. Uh, some very cool technology that's been running on the server for years. Uh, I've, we've talked about before third-party cookie stuff um, that I need to make, that I just need to finish documenting all the technologies in place. But I have a plan for something that I'm going to do relatively quickly that I think a lot of listeners will find extremely interesting. So uh, I'll have more to talk about soon okay yeah fair enough meanwhile before we get to our questions we got some great ones for you i'd love to mention squarespace.com it's a site that uh i have to say i highly recommend if you're ready to start a website or if you don't you know if you don't have one or if you have a website and you're ready to have one that's secure kind of all the time automatically you don't have to worry about updates squarespace is a great choice it's hosting plus software that's why it's always secure they keep the software up to date for you and it's the best hosting out there. They use an amazing uh, Java virtual server technology that throws bandwidth at your site whenever needed instantly. So, you know, you've got this great situation of just always available, very fast, and great content management software. I mean, the best that's out there. If you don't believe me, go to squarespace.com, click the green button, it says try it for free. And uh, you could set up your own site for 14 days, no credit card needed, no commitment. And, by the way, you get the full site. There are no limits on it. It's everything that a full-paid site gets. So you know, I know most of you already have a website. In fact, probably all of you do. And, and I certainly counsel people. I'm giving a, a speech uh, uh, on Thursday at uh, my kid's high school about uh, control. For the, it's for the teenagers about controlling your... Uh, net presence, you know, your your branding on the web and how you should be very aware of what's on the web and what's being said about you, but how important it is that you have your own website too because that really is the the number one thing you can, you know, they can, Facebook can knock you off, Flickr can knock you off, YouTube, Twitter. If you have your own website, you always have a place on the web. And uh, I'm going to show them this because it's such an easy way to do it, so affordable. You can set up your site right now. Alex Lindsay has done this. He went to a restaurant they didn't have a website. He said, what are you kidding? How can you have a business and not have a website? So before he left, during his dinner, he went to squarespace.com slash security now, set up the site, and said, here, it's yours for free for two weeks. I would suggest you, uh, you, you continue to use this. It's that simple. $12 a month if you decide to buy. Actually, it goes down the more longer you buy and so forth. They've got special accounts for business and advanced accounts. Uh, this is the best way. If you want to see what kinds of things people do with Squarespace, no two Squarespaces look alike. Just go to the examples section. You'll see plenty of businesses, 
blogs, photographers, artists, e-commerce, restaurants, businesses of all kinds that use Squarespace for their presence on the net, whether it's personal or business, squarespace.com slash security now. I want you, isn't this, look at this as a, a winery. This is gorgeous. And this is a Squarespace site. That's what's neat about it. You start with their beautiful templates. You customize to your heart's desire. And in, if, if, and I think this is, yeah, see, they have a little bit of an extra designer working on this thing here. There's no limit to what you can do because you build it on Squarespace, but then CSS and JavaScript and anything you want is all available. Squarespace.com slash security now. It's time for you to build your website. I want you to go to Squarespace. And true story, Leo, a very close friend of mine asked me two days ago um, what it was she should use for creating a website. And I said, Squarespace. Couldn't be easier. And, yep. and of course, completely secured. And that's what I... These guys, I love uh, Dane and Anthony over at uh, Squarespace. They're just, they started this as college kids not so long ago. Uh, and um, they recently, I think they just got a big venture capital... Um, uh, infusion. Uh, infusion. I'm trying to remember. It was a lot of money. I mean, this, there's definitely the sense out there that this is the platform. All right, Steve, I've got questions. I presume since you gave me the questions, you've got answers. And we've got some good dialogue from our customer, from our, uh, customers, from our, from our listeners, too. <laughs> hey, there are customers. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, question number one from Charles G. Pittsburgh. I'm presuming Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He wonders about a two-factor authentication Intel, Intel style. He says, am, am I missing something? I, you, this is something that you must have talked about when I was gone. Ah, Am I missing something? So uh, you'll have to fill me in on what this Intel yeah. thing is. But if the six-digit number can be generated on demand for authentication, I guess I have one of those VeriSign cards that does that. What's to prevent malware from being able to do the same thing? Yes, it stops crook, crooks from using other machines, but if your machine is compromised, isn't it worse than having a separate dongle? Oh, I get it. Intel's building this into the machine. Yes, it's in the Sandy Bridge chipset. Interesting. They built in exactly the same technology this one-time password authentication. And I have to say, I love our listeners because this was, this was the one of the two most popular topics when I dumped the mailbag for this week's podcast. The other one was still Bitcoin. Everyone just wants to keep talking about Bitcoin. That just really catalyzed everyone's imagination. But, but so many of our listeners said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, if this thing is, if this, 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 you know, second factor hardware is built into the computer, then what's to prevent malware from accessing it? And that's a good point. So anyway, oh, it's a great point. Yeah. And it, it is absolutely the point. So, um, what we know we can say is that, is that what this is doing is authenticating the machine. We, you know, it does not have the advantage of a freestanding credit card or football, but neither does it have the cost. That is, it just, it's just going to be there. So, so I'm, I'm also very interested in how Intel will use this. That is how it will surface, how it will be, how it will be protected. You know, what, Measures there will be to prevent malware from accessing it, but 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 the point is that 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 isn't the threat model. What Intel is has has 
hope to do, and this is inexpensive. It's not like this is some big, huge project or anything. I mean, this is a trivial little algorithm. It probably, you know, took a minuscule portion of one of their chips to do this. So it's sort of one of these things that, well, we'll just throw it in because we can and because it's simple and right. and it'll, you know, be another bullet point on our checklist of, of features that we've got for our chipset. So I didn't mean to make it a big deal. Um, what it what it does allow, though, is for for that hardware to be uniquely identified. So while it's true that malware running in the machine, I, I would be the last person to say there's no way malware could get access to it. But the point is there's no way that someone outside of the machine could know what's happening inside the machine. So it's it's. It was. I'm sure it was intended to prevent, um, for example, keystroke logging, uh, as an example, uh, from being able to be captured, or 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 um, somebody doing a man man in the middle sniffing your traffic in an open Wi-Fi who sees you logging in and then tries to log in again. That's a perfect example of what what this would defeat. So yes, it wouldn't defeat malware running in your machine. But it provides authentication for the machine itself to to entities that that don't have access to the machine, and there's a lot of those. So, so I completely agree that it doesn't have the same strength as something that software can't access, because by definition, soft, some software has to be able to access it. But that that isn't what it's trying to prevent, and. I'll also mention that there have been exploits even against one-time passwords because if malware is in our machine, it can intercept us entering our one-time password and, you know, ride on that session. So, so it's still important that we keep our machines clean and really the one-time password concept is much more meant for external protection than it is for protection against things that are already have already crawled into our machine and set up housekeeping there yeah you know it's just the same story as with the um thunderbolt issue if somebody has physical access to your machine you're you're in bad shape right i mean there's all sorts of things they can do right but presuming they don't have physical access this was this is a great solution yeah, and it's free. It'll just be there. Right. It'll be like, hey, why not use it? It's it's part of it. It's like TPM, right? I mean, it's just another kind of thing. Yes. In the chip. Mike Norris. Not Chuck Norris. Mike Norris, his brother, in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know if it's his brother. Wants to, <laughs> wants to poke a hole. It's good Chuck's not doing that because he just kick it right in there. Steve, I've installed Bitcoin and it's cranking away. I have a question about the comment to set port. Uh, the TCP port uh, forwarding to 8333 so that you can create more connections. I'm having trouble doing this. W- what, what is the procedure to uh, set this up safely? I'm running Windows 7. Mike. He wants to have um, a port forward, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, now, one thing scary about Windows is where we think we've got a firewall which is protecting us. When you look at all the exceptions that have been Right. made through the firewall for incoming traffic, it's just Swiss cheese. Yeah. It's why it's still really necessary to be behind a NAT router if you want anything like protection. In fact, I know that Mike is not is behind a NAT router. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't be having a problem. Um, you can, um, in uh, all versions of Windows that have had the personal firewall, and I did it in Windows 7 just to, to look at what the process was, you can bring up the advanced firewall configuration screen, and then you will be terrified as you scroll down through all the applications that have said to Windows, oh, I'd like to receive incoming traffic, please. No problem. No problem. Yeah. yeah. And there are, sure enough, two entries in that list for Bitcoin. I think they're alphabetically sorted. So the, they were at the top, as a matter of fact. And one is to allow any TCP connection from any IP on the outside to any IP on the inside, from any port on the outside to any port on the inside. And the second is to allow any UDP traffic. Similarly, from anywhere to anywhere, on any port to any port. So it's just wide open. Basically, Bitcoin, you know, said to, negotiated with Windows 7 and said, I need to listen to everybody. And Windows 7 said, ah, not, not a problem. Is that you know? UPnP that's doing that? Uh, no, that would be used if your computer were talking to your NAT router. Oh, okay. Um, so this is just done locally in the machine. It's done in what the it Windows means, software. I get it, I get it. I get it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what it means is, is that, you know, we really, yes, kind of there's a firewall. Like, maybe there's some traffic that it would block. I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, well, isn't so, there a way to turn this behavior off? Can we just say, don't do that automatically? Oh, yeah. You can override it. There's buttons and switches and settings and everything, but... That's really not the problem. The good news is we're behind a NAT router. So that's Mike's problem right. is, that, is that, that Bitcoin has taken responsibility negotiating with the Windows firewall to open everything up so it can hear anything happening. The problem is it's still deaf because the NAT router is not allowing stuff through. So the, the amazing site for helping people with port forwarding is just called portforward.com. And it is, I didn't even know there were this many routers in the world. <laughs> uh, it, you go to portforward.com and start scrolling. You, I don't think it's possible not to find your model, make and model of router on their list. And they will show you how to do this. Essentially, what you know the, the the you need to change some configuration settings in your router so that port 8333 which is the the port bitcoin uses to run its whole peer to peer network all of the traffic is running on over port 8333 you want to allow that to be sent into the ip address of the windows 7 machine where you're running bitcoin and then that will allow it to participate in the network. Although, I, I should also say, I'm running Bitcoin successfully behind NAT without port forwarding. The connection count is dramatically limited. I think I have eight connections, which my Bitcoin machine has been able to make. Out of curiosity, I ran it on a different machine and did allow incoming traffic and it had set up 60, 60 connections. Oh, that's so, a big difference, yeah. So a huge improvement. And, and, and more in, is better, right? Well, I don't know because it's the eight connection machine that won oh. the Bitcoin prize. And I got 50 Bitcoins. Well, that's just it. luck. <laughs> <laughs> that's not. Yeah, so I'm not really clear on what 
why more connectivity is necessary. They seem to be promoting it. So I would say do it. Um, yeah. You know, I don't see any reason not to. Do you to. get more data sets if you have more connections? Uh, it's not clear. It's not clear. You know, I, I got eight connections and that allowed me to win coinage. So, uh, you know, I'm on the network. I think I've got something like 3,000 confirmations now have come in that, that my computer did solve the puzzle correctly. So, you know, I'm like, we're, we're in good shape. But, um, but portforward.com for anyone's port forwarding needs, um, they really got it well covered. Bravo. I keep, uh, I have, I have that Bitcoin server. I just, Got to turn it back on. I, yeah. I turned it off because I thought, well, what the heck? <laughs> Nobody's going to What am I going to do with it? Uh, maybe Brian L. Gay in Atlanta, Georgia has a comment. He says, Bitcoin fail. Well, I installed the Bitcoin client on the only Windows machine I have, one built for gaming. So it, yeah, that should be fast, right? And the rest of my machines are either servers or work machines and laptops. Unfortunately, Bitcoin chose the wrong port to try to operate on. 8333? Really? This is VMware's port. Ooh. I run VM, a VMware server. Ooh, I didn't know that. I run a VMware server on all my machines, so Bitcoin won't even attempt to run on any of them, citing its inability to bind to the port, assuming it must already be running. Now I'm looking for a way to change the port and get off 8333. You know, there okay. are only 65,000 total ports, and, and uh, you know, there's going to be some collisions from time to time. Yeah, I was, I was disappointed to see that there isn't an option for changing the port from Bitcoin. But on the other hand, it probably can't be done. That is, it's probably not possible or just maybe their software is not flexible enough for one machine in their big peer-to-peer -peer network of clients that are all running on port 8333 for some random guy to be on, you know, 62942 so, or whatever. Um, so... So there is a collision with VMware server. The good news is that Bitcoin fully supports running over a SOX proxy. And of course, proxying was the topic of last week's podcast. And Bitcoin, so, by the way, I should mention the topic of two weeks hence. So if you go back in time. Yes. Or three weeks hence, you could get all the information we're talking about. Here. On Bitcoin, yes. Yeah. And Bitcoin does explicitly support Tor. Um, in their fact, they talk about someone who wants additional anonymity, um, for, for example, of the IP that they're connecting from, can use Tor. So you could run Tor, the, the, the Tor system in that machine, have Bitcoin connect to Tor, which it does by, by no, not using port 8333, and then Tor would tunnel out to the Tor network in order to get out. Or you could set up a local a local SOX proxy, set, set the local proxy um, to, to run. Uh, if, you, if you use a SOX, pro, a SOX proxy, then you're not going to be running over port 8333 locally. You would, you'd be tunneling that out through the SOX proxy and, there, and thereby avoid the collision. So, um, and, and there are lots of uh, FAQ pages over on bitcoin.org. Uh, to uh, explain how all that's done. Okay, people really got their their imaginations were captured by Bitcoin. Oh, I, I, I'm telling you, it, I mean, it this last week the it hasn't died down any. Like uh, half half of the questions people submitted kind of were interesting. interesting things about Bitcoin. Just yeah. captured people's imagination. Yeah, it did. 
our uh, banker is sitting here. Ron's from Exchange Bank, and he's going, what? <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with the old American greenback, I ask you? Um, Andrew in Northern Ireland wonders whether the server will protect us. Steve, I uh, recently started working for a small company with a single server and around 15 client machines. Having listened to security now for several years, I was a bit startled to see that most of the client machines run XP Service Pack 2 with few or no updates applied. I think this is actually pretty common. When it comes to my home machines, I have a mild case of OCD regarding keeping everything up to date with the latest patches it fixes. So seeing this got me asking my employer some questions about their security practices. They've been told that because they are behind a server, a Windows-based server, I don't know what version... They don't need to update the client machines at all. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe they don't get email. Maybe they just they just don't get email. That could be. Maybe they don't, they're not allowed to surf. They just, you know. Now, this doesn't seem right to me, and I'm sure there must be some example of how this can provide a security hole, but I can't think of any good ones. If all traffic to and from the Internet goes through the server, does that automatically protect the client machines? If a virus or a Trojan were to be installed locally, maybe via say, a USB pen brought from home or a downloaded malicious PDF file, what damage could it do if it can't get through the server to the Internet? Of course, this assumes the server is constantly up to date with Microsoft patches, virus definitions, etc. Of course, I, and I doubt this also takes place. Am I wrong? Will the almighty server protect us all, or am I right to advise updating some machines? Love the show. Regards, Andrew. I guess you could extend this to say, what if they're running, say, in a Staro security gateway or some sort of security gateway do they have to update the machines yeah they really do um i first of all it's not clear from what andrew said what this windows server is um i mean there there when microsoft does have um an isa server which is a, a firewall you know border protection server um that can do filtering and and things but um you know the we we assume that these client machines have access to the internet. I mean, it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't. Uh, maybe they're running some specific, some you know, client server application software to do whatever their business does. I mean, I'm, I'm when when he talks about having you know they're, they're behind a Windows server. It's like okay, well, I'm not really sure what that means. But if these machines have access to the internet. They are absolutely vulnerable. I mean, all of the exploits that we've talked about for the last several years that have involved browser um, client vulnerabilities um, would, I can't see how any of these things that Microsoft has been fixing constantly that we're, you know, we're sitting here waiting for Microsoft to fix these things. You know, if these machines haven't been updated since Service Pack 2, then They've got years of missing updates for exploits that are going on, known problems with, for example, um, uh, PDF files, which someone could email to them and open. And, you know, these are sometimes antivirus software catches this stuff. Other times, it, you know, it, it never catches up before Microsoft patches it and, you know, and or... There aren't any fixes for these problems through various AV tools. So I, I'd have to say, I mean, I don't want to get Andrew in trouble with his boss or, you know, challenging whoever their security <laughs> non-provider is. But uh, this seems crazy to me.
So, yeah, I, I just can't see a safe way of running machines that are out of date, that have contact with the Internet, because that's, that's where the problem comes from. Well, I mean, yeah, they're going to get infected, period, yep. right? Yep. yep. So it's just a question of, uh, you know, and, and they don't have and, to communicate and, and to the outside and, world to be dangerous. And I was just say, and as he points out, if something did come in on a USB stick, the, the most recent viruses, malware, and Trojans are using local LAN connectivity to spread throughout right. an, or, an organization. So you can assume everything behind your server is now infected. This is or, by, I think this is this is an example of what CNN, remember CNN got bit by um, uh, one of those uh, worms, Conficker or something. Yes. And, and it's exactly what happened. Somebody brought it in from the outside. Yep. It infected that computer and then spread through the network to get all the computers. And I'm sure CNN had a server between it and the outside world. They probably had routers too. Doesn't matter. Still get infected. Yep. Uh, let's talk about uh, proxies. We talked about that last week. Stephen Meyer in Switzerland has a great comment about proxy dangers. I'm new to your podcast. Really like it. Welcome, Steve. Good to Meyer. Good to have you. Uh, thanks for the high quality of content and sound. <laughs> Sounds important to us. We want to sound good. Uh, when you're talking about proxies, you forgot to mention about the sniffing risk of a proxy. Any password sent through the proxy can be listened to, and if the proxy is malicious, it could impersonate you, even when using SSL. Thanks for the nice podcast, Steve. Now, we've talked about this many, many times, maybe not on that particular episode, but certainly we have talked about this. We have, and he is so right that I, I really, I got so carried away with the technology of proxies, which is really what I was trying to cover last week, that I don't think I did justice to the huge risk of using them um and many people wrote to say uh steve you forgot to mention that that's really unsafe and it's like oh you're right i i did forget to mention that and it really is unsafe because he's right and many of our other listeners who wrote in to remind me are right and i should have spent more time on that because think about it i mean it, it absolutely is the case that when you are surfing through a proxy, even if you're using an SSL session between you and the proxy, you're then decrypting that at the proxy end. The proxy sees everything going on. So um, I guess what I should have and I didn't say is treat it the same way you would surfing in a library on a library mm, computer which yeah. i was covering earlier i mean it is just it is that bad mm -hmm. it is it is something you would use in the sort of in the context that i was painting it for if you can't if you can't get out any other way although i did use facebook as an example and that's a bad one because you have to log in to your facebook site so any proxy could see you do that and game over at that point. So I'm glad Stephen brought it up because I, I, I really should have spent more time on it last week. So I wanted to do so to, to absolutely make it clear that you, you have to, the proxy has to be trustworthy and probably none of them are. So what that means is you have to treat it as an absolutely untrusted channel and, and only use it as a means for having access you wouldn't otherwise be able to have, but but put nothing through it 
that is important to you because it's absolutely I mean, we don't know that they're sniffing things. I think that there are trustworthy, I know that there are trustworthy proxies. I, I forgot to mention a famous anonymizer.com last week. You know, a really good, they're not free, they're commercial, but I would trust them. Um, and there are other commercial ones. Um, so they're not all shady, but, you know, you just don't know who they are when you're, you know, using, you know, hidemyass.com. <laughs> yeah, who are they? Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, question six. Jesse in Minneapolis wonders about C language character arrays. What other show, ladies and gentlemen, what other show would you hear the broad range of topics that you hear on this show? In, I'm in my second semester of the uh, CSCI program at the University of Minnesota. We are currently covering the string class in Java. My, profession, my professor mentioned that in C... Uh, all strings are handled as a character array uh, ending in zero, a null terminator. That's how you know the character, the string ends. Java, Java probably is like Pascal, where it begins with a, a character count, a string length. Is that right? I don't know. My question is, if that's the case, doesn't that make any application in C <laughs> vulnerable to buffer overflow attacks? Yes. Bingo! I can, I can answer that one. Yes. <laughs> you were laughing by the time you got to the end of it. As a matter of fact. Well, we've talked about using, for instance, there's, um, there's a, there are a couple of library routines in, in uh, C for string co uh, copying. One is STRCPY and one is STRNCPY. And, uh, and all good programmers now know you use string N copy. Exactly. Um, the, way to, the way to phrase this, Jess, is because C uses null terminator strings, the way you copy a string is you copy the characters from one place to the other until you hit the null terminator. So it's the hitting the end of the string, that zero, the, the null character, is what stops the copy operation. But that is, that is the malware author's absolute dream because this means that they can get code on the stack or in your system to copy whatever data they want anywhere they want it to go. And it will just keep copying away until it hits a null character. So it is, it is absolutely the case that, that unfortunately it's very convenient to use null terminator strings, but they are incredibly dangerous and exactly as leo says the the, the uh, stir copy n variant allows you to specify the target buffer size so that the copy will terminate at either the end of the source string being copied or the end of the target buffer being reached whichever one occurs first right and that makes things way safer. As we know, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it, it certainly makes things harder to, to, um, uh, to exploit. Yeah, that's probably, at least it was for a long time, the single most common yeah. exploit was uh, exploiting these uh, string overflows. Yeah, actually, cross-site scripting has surpassed... Um, Buffer overflows? Buffer really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the new world <laughs> of the web. Uh, I'm surprised, though, you know, I would imagine, Jesse, that they're going to cover that in uh, your class. They sure ought to because, uh, you know, nowadays when you're teaching computer science and programming, you got to 
always teach about, you know, good security um, methodology. I think that's what's so nice is that we're we're to the point now where security can no longer be an afterthought. It's it's in the consciousness right. of everyone, both users and authors. It's just it's now a a factor. So, you know, we're maybe beginning to leave a little bit of the wild west days. We don't I don't think we see the we don't see evidence of it yet out on the on the frontier. Uh, but I think we will, you know, in another decade. Yeah. Christopher Thurston, Plano, Texas, wants to tell us about pro- another kind of proxies. I've been a network administrator in public and private education, K-12, through for over 10 years. And proxy use slash abuse has been, has been a nemesis for me most of the time. Of course, if you think about it, especially in a high school where you're oh. using some sort of, you know, filtering, the kids are just going to use a proxy server to get around that if they're at all sophisticated. Just like in China and Tunisia. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm a full believer in the right to privacy, the Internet, and speech. But in my line of work, the distraction of the Internet can drastically reduce student performance while simultaneously increasing the level of aggravation in our teachers. In order to make the Internet a resource instead of a distraction, and also because of SIPA, which is the uh, Protection Act, Child uh, Online Protection Act, we're forced to filter traffic during school hours. We're currently using a filter that leverages URL filtering in combination with deep packet inspection to prevent access to some of the less illustrious Internet content. The DPI portion uses matching rules based on snort packet signatures. That's pretty sophisticated. The solution does a fantastic job of eliminating proxy-type traffic as well as instant messaging and, as a result, is a great supplement to the URL filter. However, as a result, our students have had to use even more devious means... (laughs) This is it's you. I have an opinion on this, which I'll share later. But uh, what they found are two products called UltraSurf and FreeGate. These proxy services work by creating a local proxy server in the student's uh, computer machine, machine yep. and pointing to the browser or pointing their browser to this local proxy server. The proxy server then negotiates an SSL connection to the network of servers on the public internet, which then proxy the web's requests. Of course, as soon as it's SSL, you're dead because you can't Mm -hmm. inspect it. The distributed network like BitTorrent prevents blocking of specific IP addresses. This is effective because, you know, SSL encryption completely masks the packet payload, and uh, so that deep packet inspection is no longer useful. Also, because more and more sites are going dark and switching to SSL, like Facebook and Gmail, DPI is further more effective. As a result... We're in the process of using a filter similar to those you've discussed previously that recall, require the installation of a certificate authority, certificate authority, uh, CA certificate on all clients so that SSL traffic can be decrypted inside the box, authorized man in the middle. When we do this, we will, of course, do so with full disclosure and warn against using the school network for truly secure purposes like banking. In other words, the school is now saying you're going to go through our SSL and we're going to look at everything you're doing. Sorry for the length, but I thought you'd like to know about these two products specifically. By the way, from what I understand, UltraSurf was created by the CIA to subvert government internet filters in China, and FreeGate's a derivative of that. So I actually mentioned UltraSurf and FreeGate last week. They were the they were the impetus, as I as I said, for me thinking we had never talked about proxies. And what I, I I didn't focus on them because I did poke at one and and I got a response back that my IP was not in China 
and their service was only limited to oh interesting uh, for people in China. However, they both allow they they they, they go further. And and do something I didn't do because it really wasn't germane to the podcast. But clearly, uh, Christopher's kids, high school kids, are doing this, and that is they both inst- they have the option of installing Firefox plugins, and that's where they establish their the local proxy server that that uses SSL out to a a um, an agile IP network out on the public internet in order to create the connection. So. Um, I just I wanted to absolutely to bring this to people's attention. Again, I don't intend to be promoting the bypassing of established proxies and filters and things, but our listeners are savvy and responsible and may have a need. And both UltraSurf and FreeGate, um, I mean, <laughs> with the caution that the CIA seems to be involved somehow, uh, do look like ways of bypassing. Um, the use of what would otherwise be frighteningly unsafe proxies um, by switching to something that was deliberately designed for free speech and and communication. Mm. And what were you going to say about? Well, I you know I, I'm on the I'm a, on the board of trustees of my kids' school. I'm kind of their tech advisor in a high school, and um, we go back and forth on whether to filter or not filter. Mm. And I talk, I've been I also talk to educators uh, a lot. And, of course, there may be legal requirements for them to filter. And, I, and if that's the case, of course, you have to do it. Uh, but barring those, philosophically, my, my point of view is, look, every kid's got a cell phone now. You can't in their own 3G network. You can't stop it. And they go home after school where they've you got... You can't stop it. You know, yeah, exactly. So better to use this as a teaching moment and, and not block, but teach the kids the right way to use the internet teach your kids how not to be distracted they're going to face this at some point anyway might as well use that's what you're doing now isn't it in 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 school you're teaching them ways to cope with life and so i think it's an artificial constraint to say well no internet for you first of all it's not going to work <laughs> second of all then they're not learning key skills about how to deal with the internet how to deal with distraction how uh, to appropriately use the internet. And they're still distracted trying to get around the filters. They're spending more time doing that. <laughs> and every kid who has an iPhone or any smartphone can surf and go anywhere they want anyway on their 3G network, and you can't stop them. Neener, very, neener, neener. Very good point, Leo. They, they've got their own connection out to the cellular network. It's, it's hopeless. So your teachers have to learn how to deal with it. They say, put your phone away and shut your laptop. Your 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 teachers also have to teach kids how to deal with the internet. How to, I mean, this is a very what more important thing can a kid learn nowadays? Frankly, anyway, Jack. I'm sorry. I'm, I'll get off my soapbox. Question eight. Actually, before I do that, I just want to real quickly mention our friend uh, Tom uh, uh, Johnson at, at uh, MailRoute and his great anti spam solution. If you run your own server, and I know a lot of you do and you're looking for a great way to get rid of spam, stop it before it hits your server entirely. It's a lot of traffic just eliminated by a very effective system. Find out more at mailroute.info. And if you use that URL, that's our special security now URL, you'll get 10% off for the life of your account. And he's got some special deals for uh, Twit listeners too. Mailroute.info. Question eight from Jack Daniel. He's the man at Astaro, another one of our great sponsors. He's, gonna, he's got a little opinion on proxies. He says, uh, as always, thanks to you, Leo, and occasionally Tom for the great shows. Tom did a great job filling in. The web rewriting browser-as-client kind of proxies you mentioned in uh, last week's episode have a few problems. 
Jack is all about security, so he's this is his thing. First is the inherent domain obfuscation. This breaks what little cross-domain protection we have left as all content looks like it's coming to the browser from the same domain. True. So it can't discriminate. True. Second, and a bigger issue for many, these sites are free and some, perhaps most, are supported by unsavory practices at, like serving spyware and malware. We don't, you, you don't know. How could you know? Right. This type of proxy is a big problem for schools, both as they try to keep the students focused on schoolwork instead of Facebook or worse, and because of the malware issues they bring. Astaro Systems have tools to address those issues, but I don't want to do an advertisement, he says. <laughs> I, and, but a good, security, uh, uh, good security practices are, of course, part of this. I haven't looked lately, but I would also worry about those that support HTTPS sites. Are they proxying that traffic by performing man-in-the-middle proxies? I would look closely at the certificates. Finally, if they're just SSL TLS wrapping the HTTPS, the tunnel is prone to the infamous TCP over TCP tunnel collapse once retransmissions begin. But complaining about poor performance on a free proxy is probably pointless. Also, you've talked a lot about two-factor authentication over the years. Have you ever looked at WIKID, YKID systems? They have two two-factor authentication systems, one open source, one commercial and they do some pretty cool things to support a myriad of devices. I don't know this one. WIKIDsystems.com. Yeah, and I looked and only saw the commercial side. So I want to find out what the open source thing is because um, they look like they've got a broad range of support. And I would love to find a, a free source for good two-factor yeah. authentication. Yeah, you bet. Finally, updates on uh, free events. HackKid, H-A-C-K-I-D, has a few more events on the horizon. No dates yet, but H-A-C-K-I-D.org slash wiki lists several in the planning stages, including one in the Bay Area near us. Well, we'll check that out. I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to cover that. He says, another event I've been involved in and sponsored by Astaro is Security B-Sides. These are a series of free InfoSec events held around the world, sometimes adjacent to large events, Sometimes stand alone. The focus is high-quality content in a relaxed and conversational format. Great for our audience. Great for our audience. I think Leo would be dropping by to see us in Austin next week. I will. Registration is full for that one for South by Southwest. We'll be down there uh, covering it. Um, unfortunately, that one's full. We may have space for a few walk-ins, but there are many more coming up all around the world. And you can find out more about that at securitybsides.org. Security, the letter B, S-I-D-E-S dot org. That's the wiki. No need to mention my name, says Jack. I'm sure folks are sick of hearing from me. I just wanted to drop you a line with a few things I thought would be interesting. Well, of course, we'd love hearing from you, Jack. Thank you. So great points from somebody who has been, you know, over on the on the front lines of this proxying stuff. Um, the uh, Certainly the points he makes about... Um, the fact that domains are collapsed into one is very good because it is only by keeping the domain separate that that our scripts are able to be controlled. So 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 losing that uh, really does dramatically weaken script security as another you know another negative um, to that kind of uh, proxying. And that was the last one of the multiple type of proxies I talked about, where you go to a site. And you enter the URL you want to visit into that site. And what you'll see then is all the URLs and all the links of the page that come back refer to the proxy server, not to yours. What that means is 
that scripts are confused and believing that they're that they are hosted by the proxy server, not by their actual uh, origin server, and that can be a problem. Um, the SSL thing is not such a problem. Um, I think uh, that um, uh, Jack was probably assuming there was more more SSL going on than there is. The, for example, in the case of we talked about last week, hidemyass.com, you create an SSL connection between you and them and only, and then they take that apart, and then you have a non-SSL connection out to the remote site. So you probably aren't, probably aren't trying to tunnel SSL within SSL. Um, and so I don't think that's a problem. Um, and then the other information I just wanted to share with our listeners. Cool. Uh, you want a YubiKey story? Brett Moffat in Adelaide, South Australia, uses his YubiKey to log on to PayPal. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. Ever since hearing about YubiKey on Security Now, I've been a convert. The power of a one-time password and the ability to store a very long random password all on a very small device is fantastic. I just wish more sites would support it. I do, too. Uh, well, it, look, but it looks like instead of waiting for sites to accept YubiKey, Yubico have brought YubiKey to them. I noticed in a recent Yubico newsletter, there's now an option of buying a YubiKey with Symantec's VIP installed in the first memory slot of the key. This can then be associated because Symantec's is supported by sites like PayPal, and you can use your YubiKey to access these sites. The second slot can be promote, programmed to use Yubico's OTP, OAuth, or even a static password. Unfortunately, it can't be retrofitted into existing YubiKeys, but buying it with built-in costs no more than a regular key. Keep up the great work with security now. I can't wait for your VPN solution if it ever gets off the ground. <laughs> Isn't VIP uh, VeriSign? Is it Symantec? Uh, Symantec bought it. From oh, I didn't Ver know that. Yeah, they, they, they bought the VIP division from oh, VeriSign. Yeah. So it's now Symantec. And uh, I had coffee last Thursday morning with Stina Evans-Fard, our... Uh, founder and uh, actually inventor of the YubiKey concept. Um, and she mentioned this to me, which I didn't, I wasn't aware of. So I was glad to see Brett uh, bringing it up and reminded me to let everyone know that among all of the other types of tokens, which the semantic VIP service offers, YubiKey is now one of them. If you get one of their semantic VIP YubiKeys, so exactly like the credit card that we've talked about with e-ink or the, the little LCD-based football or the, the app in our phone, which frankly, I mean, that really solves a problem for me. That's the but way if I you, want it. But exactly. Yeah. Um, so essentially, this is the same incremental algorithm that the, that the static credit card approach uses where it just sequentially generates the next key, the, U, the YubiKey has that built in. And so that's one of the authentication options that it offers. So, you you know, you stick it into a USB slot and when prompted to just, you know, tap the button. And I guess if you, were, if you had some application where you needed to authenticate often, then that could be pretty handy. You just sort of leave it in the USB slot. And if, you know, every time you're being asked to re-authenticate, you just tap the little dot on the U, on the YubiKey and it would send in the next code to say, yep, it's still me. I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still here. And that and that would be easier than, you know, getting your phone out again and bringing up the app and seeing, you know, and keying in what the what the code is now being displayed. So right. I I can see a, a positive um application for that. You bet. I didn't realize the YubiKey was so sophisticated. 
I mean, it's really it's, a little computer there. They've taken it in a lot of directions. And in fact, I'm under embargo on an, on a very cool, completely new thing that they've done, probably till the end of March. Stina said they wouldn't be uh, able to talk about it yet. It doesn't have huge end-user significance. It's more something for the enterprise, but a very cool piece of technology that I'll be able to talk about uh, in about a month. Great. Our final question comes from an Eagle Scout. Actually, I don't know if it's a question. It's more like information. He says, Steve... Lance writes, Steve, uh, you've talked the last couple of weeks about Bitcoin. After your podcast, I decided to check it out. After running two computers with Bitcoin for a day, I saw nothing. <laughs> look, it takes time. Be patient. <laughs> so I decided to look into what others were doing to compete with these GPU Bitcoin farms. I found that pooled mining is a great way to combat this. I joined the mining effort at uh, mining.bitcoin.cz, which is, I think... The Czech Republic. Yep. And after two days, I had generated one Bitcoin. However, my computer had just as yours cranked out the hot air, and I could hear the liquid constantly being pushed through. So I just, in other words, it was working. So I decided it wasn't worth wearing out my two computers for 50 cents a day. Now both computers that I was using were quad cores, one at 3.4 gig one at 2.8 gigahertz, so I was on the higher end of CPUs. I, I can't imagine how long it would take an older PC, even in pooled mining, to generate one Bitcoin. I still wanted to get in on these Bitcoins, but it was pretty apparent that I was either going to wear out my PCs doing it, or I had to invest money into a GPU or just buying coins. But after searching around, I found actually most people using Bitcoin do not farm for them. They use sites that accept Bitcoin to sell items and make Bitcoin from those sales. In other words, it's really become an economy. So they have yes, sites. There is there is really an economy. Yeah, like there's sites like eBay and Amazon that you can bid or pay in Bitcoin. For those looking to get into the Bitcoin game, I would highly suggest try to sell items on these trading sites that accept Bitcoin instead of using eBay. Then you can you know build up a accumulate some Bitcoin. As I personally found it a lot easier than farming Bitcoins. And this way, you'll still make bitcoins, but you won't have to wear out your computer, waste bandwidth, and run up your electric bill doing it. I got, you know, I got to set up bitcoin donations. Thanks, Steve, Leo, and Tom. I just, I, I feel like I like American money better. <laughs> for for now. Thanks, Leo, Steve, and Tom, for the excellent podcast. You guys are my secret weapon at work to keep my job and getting raises. Lance Eagle Scout. So I, I just wanted to again. There was there's been so much interest in in Bitcoin that I think people liked it because it was a little wacky and off topic from what we normally do. Yet it still has serious crypto side because of the sure. architecture that that was developed. It's kind the of hackery that, too. It's kind of um, out of the mainstream kind of. Uh, I like anar anarchy. Yeah, it, it was yeah, anarchist. Yeah. Yes, and um, and so. This farming, I did mention farming in the podcast, but I wanted, to, uh, thanks to Lance, to bring it up again because the idea is that it's it sort of flips the model around. Rather than one machine cranking away in isolation all by itself in the corner, pumping out heat, and not very often pumping out Bitcoins, like, you know, they're estimating you would win one puzzle once a year <laughs> and get 50 you know, I just lucked into it and, and won one after less than a week. But, you know, I haven't done anything since. I still got those machines running and nothing. The alternative is to change the model around and join a mining pool 
where you you any machines that you can allocate to it, you you're all working together. And if any one of those machines in the pool solves the puzzle, then you all share equally in the Bitcoinage. Doesn't seem like that would give you any bigger advantage though, because you have to split it. Yeah, but instead, of, but he got one Bitcoin in two days. So you know, so it's like it's it's instead of getting fifty at once, you right. you get one at a time. It's like saying, least, it's like a, it's like creating a pool for the lottery, though. I mean, I. It's very much the same, yes. But at least you're not looking at 0.00. Right. I guess that's of, frustrating you know. for people. <laughs> it's yeah, a weird, it's, it's kind of a weird system that way. You just, you know. The whole thing is wacky. Can you, you, so there's no expectation that you can generate any particular amount of Bitcoin over any particular amount of time. It's just random. Right. It's purely statistics. And so, you know, because I solved the puzzle, someone else who'd been working for you know, a year who came in second didn't solve it. Poor but, guy. you know, I was working for less than a week and, and got 50 coins. It's like, sure. ah, sorry about that. <laughs> Not unplugging mine, though. <laughs> well, and, yeah, what do you got? I think people would do better just buying a copy of Spinrite from Steve. It's just pure curiosity. <laughs> it's just fun. I think it's, I, did, I had the same reaction when I first heard about it. Ran the server for a while. Same thing. It was. It's very interesting. It's, yeah, and uh, on, on these cold days, you could use a little extra heat. Yeah, why not? Yeah. God knows i got enough computers running, idling, sitting there. Steve uh, is at grc.com. That's his website. He actually tweets, too. If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at sggrc. Uh, and his corporate account is at Gibson Research. grc.com is a place to go for 16 kilobit versions of the show, transcripts, show notes. And uh, there are 290 shows on there, so you can go back in time and look at them all. He's got them all there, grc.com. While you're there, pick up a copy of Spinrite. Every hard drive needs Spinrite. And a lot of free stuff there, too. Some great free security apps and more. grc.com. And uh, Steve, we'll be back in our regular time next week. Thank you for allowing us to uh, shift you with MacBreak Weekly, because tomorrow, of course, the iPad announcement. But normally we do record Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific at live.twit. TV, so. And so your trip next week doesn't interfere with our podcast? Not at all. I don't leave oh. for Austin till Friday afternoon. Cool. Yep. Okay, my friend. See you next week. Talk to you then. Thanks. Security now.